Thank you, ladies. Great thought, great song, great job. Aren't you glad God loves you? Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 709, Matthew chapter 9. We are in the early weeks of a 21-message Sunday morning series that I've called Learn of Him to Flee from Idolatry. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.14 told believers there to flee from idolatry. That means that those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are commanded to flee from idolatry. We shouldn't have anything or anyone that we admire, love, reverence, or prioritize more than God our Creator, the God of the Bible. Last week we talked about the fact that our Creator is omnipotent. And to reject a creator that is omnipotent is to create, to commit idolatry because God is who he has revealed himself to be. Listen, God isn't who you say he is or I think he is. God is who he is. And so we look into his word to find out what he has said about who he is. And Paul told Corinthian believers, in addition to flee from idolatry, he said in chapter 8, he said, though there be many that are called gods, there is but one God. And in in contrast to that, though there is one God, the world into which Jesus sent his apostles and the New Testament prophets, there were many that were called gods. There's a pantheon of Greek gods and Roman gods. Everywhere the apostles took the message that Jesus was crucified, uh, died for our sins, and rose again from the dead. And some took great offense to the fact that the apostles pointed out that those they worshipped were not gods. And some took great offense to the apostles telling them that those that they worshipped were either man-made imagination or devils posing as a god. But it is not the sincerity of our belief that makes anything true because a lot of the people to whom they took the gospel of Jesus Christ sincerely believed what they believed. Listen, sincerely believe in Zeus or Diana to be God doesn't God any more than someone believing in a flat earth makes it anything other than a sphere. It is consistency with the written words of God that makes something true or false. And though there are many purposes for the Bible, the primary purpose for the Bible is for God to reveal himself to mankind. You see, you can look around and I can look around at the world around us and you can certainly see from the complexity in our world and the complexity of biology that there is a creator. But if you want to know what that creator is like, we must look in the scripture, not in the creation. Unfortunately, most people, they don't look in the Bible. They make a Jesus that makes sense to them instead of finding the Jesus as he's revealed himself to us and in doing so commit a form of idolatry as well. And I think I echo the view of most people here this morning, when I say I personally, I want to follow, believe, and love God as he's revealed himself to be. The head of the Greek pantheon of of gods was Zeus. He was allegedly the sky and thunder god and chief of the gods of Mount Olympus. He's usually pictured as a man with a beard and symbolized by a thunderbolt, an eagle, or a bull. And in places where the apostles took the gospel, many sincerely believed that Zeus was the, quote, all-father. 
fact, if you read myths associated with Zeus, among the stories of him are stories where he was tricked by humans or other gods on occasions. In one occasion, the titan Prometheus tricked Zeus by covering the best portions of a sacrifice with the stomach of an ox. And that tricked Zeus. Pretty obvious. Do you read the stories of a being called Zeus that Zeus did not know everything about everything? In contrast to the false god Zeus, Jehovah, the god of the Bible, is omniscient. Someone said an expert is someone who knows more and more about less and less until finally they know everything about nothing. If you would stand this morning in honor of the Word of God, the title of my thought this morning is God knows everything about everything. God knows everything about everything. Matthew chapter 9, we begin in the Word of God in verse 1, and it says, and he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. Behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Thank you, you might be seated. This is one of the few accounts in, from the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth that God chose to record in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Anything God chose to record even one time makes a huge difference. And if God recorded it twice, even more so, but in this particular case, uh, God saw such importance in this particular story that he put it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. This story begins in the city of Capernaum in verse 1. It says he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. Now, when we think about stories that God records in all three Gospels or more than once, I mean, understand that each one of them is there for a reason. And God is kind of like uh, three or four of us watching a car accident and each of us writing down what happened. And even though we might write everything that's true, each of us would record different details of that event. And it's like that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if we were to study the comparative passage, we would find that even though it's not recorded here, that this event takes place in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Jesus was raised in Nazareth of Galilee, but his ministry was focused in the city of Capernaum. That's why in verse 1 it calls it his own city. Uh, by the way, that was the same city that the apostles uh, Andrew and Peter were from, and maybe even a couple of other of them. It was a town on the, a small town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, uh, in addition to recording that 
uh, this story took place in Capernaum, uh, Mark and Luke also add the fact that there was uh, a great multitude of people there. In fact, there were so many people there. Uh, the Bible describes Jesus as preaching the word unto them. There were so many there that you couldn't even get close uh, to Jesus at that time. And though it doesn't record it here either, uh, there were four men who, because they couldn't get to Jesus, they brought this uh, para paralytic man, they brought him to Jesus on the roof. And they broke through the roof and lowered this man down to where Jesus was. Again, if we were reading all three of those uh, gospel accounts, we'd be able to preach this, uh, put this all together like that. And Jesus, as I said earlier, when this great crowd gathered, and that's what it said in the end, verse 8, but when the multitude saw it, so there was a lot of people gathered there. Uh, Jesus, quote, preached the word to them. But by the way, it is so important that we preach the word. We live in a day and age when a lot of American Christians would say, I don't need anybody to preach. We also live in a day and age when other Christians say, I don't need anybody to teach. In reality, since Jesus both preached the Word and taught the Word, whether we like it or not, we all need both preaching and teaching of God's Word. Uh, in verse 2, it says, And behold, they, and we know from the other accounts, that's four men, brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying in a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, uh, not just this man's faith, their faith. Uh, obviously, this man had faith too, but so did the men bringing him. Uh, Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, when you and I read the word palsy in, in our New Testament, it is an old English word that just means some kind of paralysis. Uh, paralysis can come from a lot of different things. You can be paralyzed because of an injury to your spine of some sort. You can be paralyzed because of some sort of a birth defect. And we're not really told how this man got the palsy, how he was paralyzed. We just simply know that he was paralyzed to such a degree that he had to be carried by four men. He was completely bedridden. Isn't it an interesting thing that when they lower this palsied man, so crippled from paralysis that he can't even walk himself, he's bedridden, it's, isn't it interesting that the first thing Jesus says to him, his son, be of good cheer, thy sin. You see, we often look at things wrong. This man's greatest need was actually not his physical healing. This man's greatest need was actually to have his sins forgiven by the Lord Jesus. It is hard and difficult if we have bodies that are broken and suffering in this life. But understand that a broken body is just in this life. Whether our sins are forgiven or not, that affects us in this life and it affects us in the next life. And whether you realize it or not, or whether you believe it or not, there is a next life. And whether you have Jesus uh, in your life, whether He's forgiven you or not, makes all the difference in the next life as to whether you'll spend the next life with God in heaven or the next life in hell in the flames. Right. And though Jesus first forgave him, this man obviously wanted more 
than forgiveness. He wanted healing. And so Jesus healed him, and he walked away carrying his bed in verses 6 and 7. Uh, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. <laughs> I, we should pray for people's physical healing. Listen, our God is the great physician. Uh, and it's never over till God says it's over. But there's something drastically wrong when the focus of our prayer life is physical healing rather than people being forgiven. Do you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that if the, uh, a person who is completely illiterate of the Bible walked into most American churches and they looked at the prayer list or looked at the prayer list of most American Christians, they would think that the greatest ideal and goal of the Christian life was to be healthy. Because that is what dominates churches and individual prayer lists. Again, I'm not saying don't pray for people to be healed. We should. But, but listen, the greatest need that people have is not their physical healing. The greatest need that people have is a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. They need forgiveness. Jesus, thankfully, had his priorities right. He was concerned about this man's health and about his life, but he was first concerned about his soul. But this morning, it isn't really the controversy that the Jewish leaders had there that day with Jesus' authority to forgive sins. He had authority both to heal and forgive sins. Uh, that's not my thought. My, the thing that is my attention uh, this morning is actually an observation that the Holy Spirit makes about Jesus. It's an observation that he could not make about any of us. Did you see it in verse 4? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your heart? Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what was in their heart. See, now you and I oftentimes think we know what someone's thinking. And we may or may not be right. Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew something that was humanly impossible to know. And on several occasions, if we were studying this, we would find similar observations in the Gospels where it says something along the lines of Jesus knowing their thoughts or knowing their heart or knowing all men. Now for most of us, it's bad enough to hear the words that people say in careless moments. I think... I could speak not just for myself, but most of us when I said, you know what, I don't really want to know what people are thinking a lot of times. God, ju judging by just the expression on my wife's face at times, I don't know what, well, I, I want to know what she's thinking. Though I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> it's a story told about a college professor. He was grading the final exams that he had given to his students just before winter break. And in one of the questions, one of the students uh, wrote the following. Only God knows the answer to this question, Merry Christmas. Well, the student came back from his winter break, and he looked at this paper, and the professor had written the following. God gets an A, you get an F, Happy New Year. 
Fact of the matter is, God knows everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. God is omniscient. When God doesn't answer our prayer the way we expect Him to answer, some people wrongly conclude that either God doesn't care or God doesn't know that they asked. Hear me when I say this simple sentence. God does know He's not anyone's genie. God always knows, but He is not anyone's genie. Now, for anyone who's a sincere follower of Jesus and you're here this morning and you're trying to live a sincere uh, Christian life, I mean, understand, the omniscience of God gives us great comfort. <laughs> I mean, God knows what's really going on. He, he remembers that we are just dust saved by His grace, and so we find comfort in the fact that God knows everything about us. Hey, listen, I'm not the only person in this room who's been misunderstood. We all have been misunderstood. I am glad that God always knows the truth about what is in my mind and what is in my heart and what is going on in my life. Now, if you're here this morning, on the other hand, and you're either not saved or you're living the life of a prodigal son, the omniscience of God rightly should strike fear in your heart. Listen, God knows what's really going on. He's not fooled with how you appear this morning. God knows what's really going on. He's not fooled like your family might be with the image you put on in a few hours you spend with them. God will not be mocked. He knows everything we've done. He knows every, anything we've said. He knows every place we've been, whether it has been good or bad. He knows whether we did it in the privacy of the darkness or He knows whether we did it in the light of the public eye. God knows. And whether people believe it or not, God knows everything. Our God, our Creator, our Savior is omniscient. God said of Abraham, I know him. That he'll command his children and household after him. Genesis 18, 19. Of Israel and Egypt, God said, I know their sorrows. Exodus 3, 7. God said to Moses when he was discouraged, I know thee by name. Of Israel in the wilderness, God said, I know thy imagination. Deuteronomy 23, 21. In Isaiah's day, God said, I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me. In Isaiah 37, 28. In Ezekiel's day, God said, I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Ezekiel 11, 5. You may remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where the Lord Jesus speaks to seven specific churches in Asia. Do you know one of the things that He said to all seven of them? I know thy works. God knows everything. Please don't make the mistake of thinking God doesn't know what's going on when He does not handle us or a situation the way we think He should. It is us who does not know everything, not Him. And you and I must attempt to be humble enough to trust Him when we don't understand what's going on because He knows everything. He's omniscient. In 2010, federal marshals in Ohio caught a man who called himself Bobby Thompson. 
Bobby Thompson, or the man who called himself Bobby Thompson, he scammed $100 million from donors by setting up a fake charity for naval veterans called the U.S. Navy Veterans Association. Well, when they caught him, they charged him with fraud and identity theft and money laundering. And while this whole thing was in process and they hadn't brought him in yet and were trying to put things together, he, he fled. And he lived in six different states over the course of two years. In fact, when he was in Boston, he set up another fake charity called Plymouth Rock Society of Christian Pilgrims. But on May 3rd of 2012, they caught him in Portland, Oregon. He had a storage locker under one of his alias names, and they found multiple birth certificates, social security numbers, and suitcases filled with about a million dollars. For the longest time before they brought him in, they didn't even know who he was, because anywhere he signed, he just signed with an X. When they finally caught him, before they had booked him, so to speak, uh, the federal officer making the arrest said, he's not giving up anything, nothing, nada. Authorities later learned, when they were able to fingerprint him, that his real name was John Donald Cody. And in a court in Ohio, he's been fined over $9 million. He is today serving a 28-year sentence, and every Veterans Day he gets put in solitary confinement. Human authorities, they didn't know who he was. They didn't know where he was for a long time. But God knew both. God is omniscient. He knows everything about everything past, present, and future. And so what I'd like to do this morning for just a few moments is make some observations and applications of the fact that the one true God is omniscient. God knows everything about everything. Please first go in your Bible to Matthew, or I'm sorry, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And you can go to the end of the chapter, actually. It's a long uh, chapter. I think it's the longest chapter in John. If it's not, it's one of the longest chapters in John. John chapter 6. Some applications and observations about the fact that the one true God is omniscient. Here's number one. Because God is omniscient, He knows whether we're really saved or not. Because God is omniscient, he knows whether we're really saved or not. John chapter 6 and verse 66 says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with them. By the way, before we go on, if somebody's making a big deal out of the fact that that's John 666, what I would challenge you to do is find the four places in the Bible where the verse and chapter is a 666, and what you'll find is the other three have nothing to do with what we link 666 to. There's a lot of people make up a lot of stuff about the Bible. And by the way, Jesus and the apostles never used chapter or verse numbers to be any significance, and so I don't either. I, I believe the Bible. Uh, and for those of you who kind of have an Americanized view of Jesus, this story basically begins, we don't have time to study the chapter, but understand that he's had, he said something that was so difficult that his disciples, a lot of them said, nah, I'm not following you anymore. By the, by the way, the marketed version of Jesus of Nazareth in America today, in many cases, is at best partially the real Jesus. 
He said some difficult, hard things. I didn't say mean things. I didn't say harsh things. He said some hard things. Verse 67, then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Notice it's not to the eleven, to the twelve. Verse 68, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. By the way, if you want to know what they believed, that's it. Uh, by, by the way, you understand that Peter and the apostles understood, hey, Jesus, you just said something hard. It was difficult. I'm not capable of hearing it. I didn't even really like it. But I have nowhere else to go. You are the source of life. And if I want to hear the words I want to hear, I also must listen to the truth you have to say that I don't want to hear. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him being one of the twelve. Do you see Jesus all along knew who Judas was? The apostles had no idea. Judas pretended to be a follower of Jesus with such skill and such thoroughness that the man that he spent day and night with for three to three and a half years, they shared meals, they preached and taught together, they had private conversations morning, noon, and night. He had so thoroughly convinced the other apostles that they had no idea that he was not a true believer. He did not really believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the, of the living God. He had not really trusted him. He was not saved. They had no idea, but Jesus knew. He was among the twelve who stayed after the hard saying. <laughs> you know, we look around and sometimes it's good for us just to be honest and say, you know what, we don't really know who's saved or lost other than ourselves. By the way, Jesus knew who was lost and Judas knew he was lost. Judas knew he hadn't trusted Christ. Judas knew he wasn't forgiven. Judas knew exactly what was going on. By the way, if you've been under the, anyone preaching and teaching the Bible for any length of time, you're here this morning, and you know whether Jesus is really in your life or not. You cannot have the Christ, the Son of the living God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, living in your heart. And say, well, I don't know if he's there or not. If you're not saved, you know it, and Jesus knows it. Can I just say, this life is your only opportunity to fix that? If you're waiting until after you die to say, well, I'm going to see if everything, Brother Wally and those guys preaching and teaching the Bible, I'm going to, if that all comes true, then I'll believe, no, it'll be too late. This life is your opportunity to either believe or not believe in the Lord Jesus, to either receive or reject Him, to either humble yourself to call upon Him, or to refuse to do so. God knows every heart and every person here. He knows whether Jesus is in your heart or not. You can fool us. We want to be fooled. But you can't fool Him or yourself. That should strike fear in your heart, in Christ. 
But listen, if you're here and you're saved, whether you were saved as a five or six-year-old child or as an adult like I was at 24 years of age, regardless of when you were saved, listen, if you know Christ is in your heart, for him, for you to know that He knows that you're saved, it gives you great comfort. He knows. He knows if you came here to try to worship God. He knows if you came here to try to learn more about God. He knows if you came here to honor God in your life. He knows if you came with a heart to hear. He knows if you came with a heart to serve Him. He knows if you came with a heart to grow. By the way, He also knows if you just came because your family was here. He also knows if you just came because your friends were here. He also knows if you just came because, quite frankly, you were bored and didn't have anything else to do. All the last few days, all you've done is sit around the house and say, wow, great, good, now I can get out of the house and go to church. He knows why you're here. He knows. He's omniscient. And I hope if you're here and you're not yet saved, I hope this morning you'll make that sure. That's why we have what we call an invitation at the end of every service where you're invited to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you would humble yourself, if you would confess yourself as a guilty sinner, and if you would humbly call on the Lord Jesus, He'd forgive and save you. By the way, I hope and pray if you're here and you are saved, I pray that you just simply find comfort in the fact that God But it isn't just that because God is omniscient, who is truly saved and who is lost in their sins. Secondly, please go in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's in the Old Testament. By the way, it's okay if you have to look in the concordance in the beginning of your Bible to find it. I'm glad you're here. I wouldn't want to pastor a church where everybody knew where Ecclesiastes was. Say, why? Because that means we wouldn't be reaching anybody. We're supposed to be at all different places in life. If you're one of those people who thinks, well, wow, man, I can't come to the church because everybody there has got it together. A, you don't know the people here. And B, you don't understand why we come to church. We don't come to church because we have it together. We come to church because we want to be better than we are now. And Christ taught us to do it, amen? Here's number two. Because God is omniscient, He will one day bring every secret thing to light in the judgment. Because God is omniscient, He will one day bring every secret thing to light in the judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the conclusion of the wise man, everything he's said for 12.8 chapters. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment. How many of our works are coming into judgment? Every. For God shall bring every work into the judgment with every secret thing. How many of our secret things are coming into the judgment? Yeah, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So our works and our secret things, are they only going to come into the judgment if they're good? Are they going to come into the judgment whether they're good or evil? Because God is omniscient, He will one day bring every secret thing to light in the judgment. By the way, there are a lot of people who think, well, I'm not going to stand before God in judgment. 
uh, understand this. It doesn't matter whether you think you will or not. You will. The New Testament is clear. It is appointed unto men once to die after this judgment. Uh, the Old Testament is clear. We just read it. For God shall bring every work into the judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Giving account of ourselves to God for every work is intimidating. But to give account of ourselves to God for every secret thing is even more fearful. Everybody here knows the things that we've done that we know that the people who are close to us don't know. What goes on in our minds, what goes on in our hearts, what has gone on in the darkness of a Friday night, God knows. And that's all coming into the judgment, good and bad. Own, bosses judge our performance. Police judge the speed of our vehicle. Teachers judge our answers on tests. And only God can bring all of our works into the judgment with every secret thing because only God is omniscient to know them all. God not only knows what we did, He knows why we did it. I'm not the only one here who's done the right what for the wrong why. He knows what we didn't do and why we chose not to. God is omniscient. And because God is omniscient, He will be a just and thorough judge on Judgment Day. Listen, if you're here and you're a true Christian... Jesus Christ is in your life. doesn't matter whether you're Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian or Lutheran or whatever it is. Uh, I'm talking about a true Christian. Jesus Christ is in your life. Understand that you and I will stand someday before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ for our works to determine our rewards in His kingdom. It was settled that we would go into His kingdom the day we were born again and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the rewards and opportunities we'll have in His kingdom in eternity are linked with what we do for Christ. If you're here and you're not saved, your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. Understand that you too will face God, but your judgment will not be to determine your rewards in Christ's kingdom. It will be to determine the lever of punishment you have in the lake of fire. That is a fearful thing. God is omniscient. Many of us have filed income taxes for many years with the federal government, and if you're like me, they take too much money to put on things I don't want to spend money on. But back in 1987, the IRS changed their filing rules and they required a social security number for every child that someone claimed as a dependent. You realize the first year that they required a social security number for someone to claim as a dependent, there were 7 million less dependents in America. See, the IRS doesn't know it all. They seem to be knowing a lot, but they don't know it all. Hey, 
Only God knows it all. God is omniscient. And and, and again, if you're here and you're a sincere follower of Jesus, and with all of your heart, though you fail and though you fall short, you really try to follow Him, you really try to live with Him, you really try to be humble before Him, you keep your sins confessed, you do as best as you can what you know He wants from your life. Understand, this ought to find, it ought to comfort you. It ought to give you grace. It ought to make you feel good. Because God knows knows the truth. But if you're not like that, it should rightly strike fear in your heart. Because God will bring every work into the judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. But it isn't just that because God is omniscient, He will bring every work and every secret thing to light someday. Lastly, in your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. That's the second book in the Bible. By the way, if you don't know where Exodus is, I'm glad you're here. When I got saved almost 40 years ago, I didn't know where anything was in the Bible either. I just know I didn't want to go to hell. I knew Jesus died for my sins. I knew he rose again from the dead, and I know God promised that if I would place my faith and trust in Christ and humbly call upon him, that God would save me. That's all I knew. And by the way, that's all you need to know, to be saved. But God does want us to grow in grace and in knowledge of him after that. Which gets us to our third thing, number three, because God is omniscient. He always knows what we're going through. Because God is omniscient, He always knows what we're going through. Now, when we read Exodus 3, we, in this section we're going to read, it is God speaking to Moses from a burning bush. Moses, if you're familiar with his story, was raised in the palace of the Pharaoh as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, though fully educated and very successful in Egyptian culture, tried to take it upon himself to deliver the Israelites from slavery. He was the man, but it wasn't the time. And so God sent him off into the wilderness, so to speak, a desert area of Midian, and there for 40 years he watched sheep. Listen, that's not an easy thing to go from the palace of Egypt, from the prominence of the most advanced culture of the day, to the backside of the desert watching sheep. And one day when he's watching those sheep, after he'd been there for four decades, there's a bush off in the distance that's burning. It catches attention, and he goes over by it, and he notices that the bush is burning, but it is not being consumed by the flames. And as Moses approaches that bush, God speaks to him from the bush, and he says, take your shoes off your feet, because the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And my focus for this morning, in keeping with our thought, is something that God said to Moses. Understand, by the the Israelite people had been enslaved in Egypt 400 years. They were so mistreated that at times the Pharaoh would require them to throw them and drown the male children. That's pretty oppressed. They had no opportunity for wealth. They had no opportunity for freedom for 400 years. 
Suppose that was you, what would you be doing for 400 years? Where's God? I, I thought God promised our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that uh, He was our God, and that we were going to get to that land. He, uh, what's going through your mind? God, are you hearing my prayer? God, are you seeing my tears? God, do you know what's going on in my life? Just, just like all of us here today, at different times when things are going on, and, and, and we say to ourselves, God, where are you? Notice what God says to him in verse 7 of chapter 3. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters for their sorrows. Did you see that? I've seen, I've heard, and I know. So how could God do that? God is omniscient. He saw their afflictions. He just didn't respond the way Moses and the others thought he should. He heard the cries of his people at the hands of their oppressors. But he didn't intervene as soon as they thought he should. He knew the sorrows of his people, though he allowed their sorrows to continue much longer than they thought they should continue. And I plead with you not to judge whether God sees or hears or knows based on the way you think he should respond. God is omniscient. He knows. I'm going to make this next statement twice. All our problems with how God handles things boil down to us trusting our limited knowledge of past, present, and future more than we trust God's omniscient knowledge of past, present, and future. I'll say that again. All our problems with how God handles things boil down to us trusting our limited knowledge of past, present, and future more than we trust God's omniscient knowledge of past, present, and future. Listen, if you're a child of God in here this morning, you ought to be encouraged. You have an omniscient Savior. He knows your situation. In fact, if you're a young adult here today, uh, He knows what it's like to go from being young and thinking that life was easy to becoming an adult and learning life is not easy. He knows. Listen, I, I know the people here, there are a lot of good, godly people here who if they knew what was going on, they would reach out, they would empathize, they would pray, they, they would do whatever they could. But all of us are limited. God is unlimited. I can just tell you as a pastor, I grieve regularly over the fact that I can't know what's going on. And lots of times, I know you're going through tough times. And I, If I knew, I would pray for you. If I knew, I'd reach out if I could. I just want to tell you this morning, God always knows. It doesn't matter whether it's the middle of the darkest night in a hospital. It doesn't matter if it's the wee morning hours <laughs> sitting by the casket or body of a dead loved one. It doesn't matter whether you're in the waiting room wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, listen, God is omniscient. He knows. It is a great thing to have an omniscient Savior. 
And if you follow any being that is anything other than omniscient, knows everything about everything, you are committing idolatry. And we've been told from idolatry. If you'd quietly stand.